back to 64, a chess podcast. I am David Vizgon coming at you live from Copenhagen, Denmark. Welcome to the show, new listeners, old listeners alike. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, don't forget to follow, subscribe. Joining me today is Fide Master Nate Solon, uh, hailing from greater Boston area, soon to be Nebraska. Nate is a data scientist by day, a semi-active chess player, occasional chess player, uh, blogs, tweets, writes about chess very frequently, does cool data analysis on chess. And uh, from what I read, you're also a retired poker player. So welcome yep. to the show. We're going to cover all this today. Um, welcome to the show. I'm really glad to have you. You got a shout out from Benji Porto, my last, uh, one of my last episodes. You guys can check that one out. You got a shout out for some of the data analysis stuff you do. So I'm glad we're making this happen. How's it going? Great. Yeah. Excited to be here. Thank you. Um, yeah, Benji is, is awesome and really, really knowledgeable with, with the data stuff as well. Um, so yeah, I also, you, you were saying, I, I did, I played poker for a living for, um, something like seven years, um, up until a few years ago when I got back, back into, well, got into data and also sort of got back into chess, especially, um, content. So yeah, I would say I'm like, I'm an occasional chess tournament player and frequent chess tweeter at the moment. Can I ask you, like, what is what is it about? Like, because I've had the Shahadis on my show. I've had some other, you know, habitual poker players. What is it about chess players and poker, man? Like, what's the what's the what's the catch? I mean, I think it's I think it's just games. Like, there's a certain type of personality that's attracted or fascinated by games. So I think for at, at least a lot of people sort of in my generation in the United States, a lot of us grew up playing chess. And then at some point there was an era where if you were good at games and you like games, you sort of knew how to study games, you can make a pretty decent living playing poker. But why so, didn't you guys jump to like Magic the Gathering or something like that next? Well, I've, <laughs> I've, I've played a lot of Magic too, actually. Oh, there you um, go. <laughs> not as much. Like that, that's sort of been the one. At this point, I just don't have enough time to play all the games I would like to play. Right. And Magic is sort of is the one that's dropped off, along with poker. I, I mean, I don't really play play any poker anymore either. Um, but well, I think I think the money just wasn't as good in Magic, basically. Like, like poker actually for there was like this poker boom where a bunch of people were playing and most of them were not very good. And like it wasn't that hard to make a pretty decent living. Um to, as far as I like, I've never been like a really serious competitive magic player, but at least from where I was sitting, it seemed like even the very best magic players were, were struggling to make a living playing magic. So I don't, I don't think the financial incentives were there in the same way. Right. And also you have to like, I mean, it is kind of like poker in one sense, but you do need to have like to keep, you know, maining the same decks and, you know, being at the top line, but you got to spend a lot of money on, on that kind of stuff. Yeah, and, just uh, just keeping up with the cards is yeah, is an ridiculous. investment. Although honestly, if I still had all those cards, probably they I think they're all worth much more now. So maybe that maybe just 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 uh the cards appreciating would have been like the most profitable part of the whole thing. Yeah, they're like real life NFTs. Magic sort of, cards. Or, yeah. or maybe they'll be replaced by NFTs now. I don't know. I I heard it's someone speculating about that. Yeah. yeah, I mean I'm 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 sure. I mean it, it just makes too much sense. Um but yeah, it's it's a to divert the conversation from NFTs. Um, yeah, I guess let's get right into it. I think the interesting thing about like the stuff, so you have a, a Substack actually, zwishinsook.substack.com. And I've actually, I've been reading it for since the beginning of December, since you made that, uh, 
you know, the chess improvement 2022 one. Oh yeah. I sort of did like a big kind of checklist. Yeah. If you're, if you're making your plan for the year. Right. And I thought it was very wholesome. I think it was very like, uh, it was very accurate. Like I, I, I agreed with the, with the philosophy. I mean, if you guys don't know what I'm talking about, the link will be in the description. If you want to just pause the episode and listen to it or check it out later. Um, and now you came out with this thing a couple of days ago, which I thought was a really cool experiment. So you, you looked on Lee Chess. Uh, you've selected, you know, I think it was Rapid Games 2000 ELO or something on Lee Chess. And yeah, it was, uh, the, it was the Blitz games actually, but, it, but I was sort of focusing on the opening. So, uh uh-huh, right. It yeah. was Blitz. Uh, and you looked at the mainline Rui Lopez. Yeah. Yeah. So, my idea there, I'm, and, and I think this is like pretty characteristic of what I like to do. So, you know, I, I work as a data scientist, but um, I guess as often as not, I find myself arguing, well, maybe arguing for like a more common sense approach to looking at data. So, th- so this is a good example of like, it's not big data. There wasn't a ton of math involved, but it was more just like, let's try to get a handle on something. So the big, it, it came from, I'd wrote something previously a month or two ago about how I noticed that, that a lot of maybe be- beginning to intermediate club players seem to, you know, be really intimidated by mainline openings and sort of feel like it's not realistic for me to, to play a mainline, you know, like a Roy Lopez or, a, you know, a Queen's Gambit, let's say in my repertoire, because it's like, it's too complicated. It's too much work. So I need to play some, you know, sort of weirder courtier openings that are more manageable. So I wrote something saying like, um, you know, I don't think that's really the case. I think wherever you're starting, like, I don't think you have to play mainlines. I think like any opening that doesn't lose outright is basically fine, but I think definitely anyone can play mainlines. Um, and where that was coming from was just like from my own games, from like student games, from basically like any game of anyone that I could see. I just was never seeing this game where the players were ultra booked up and like played 20 moves of theory, knew the middle game, you know, plans perfectly, played a perfect game and never gave you a chance. Like I've maybe occasionally seen a game play, play out like that at the grandmaster level. But even then, very rarely, and like really never below the grandmaster level. So basically, I just I had the feeling that like this fear is kind of unrealistic. So I kind of wrote um, I, I wrote about that, and then I did I heard back from from several kind of intermediate club level players about like saying like, no, you know, actually some of my opponents are super booked up. So so this newer post was like a little experiment on that. I just set the settings on um, Lee Chess for like the two thousand rating bracket. And just if you, whatever settings you set on Lee Chess, it'll, it'll show you like top, like most recent games that fit. And, and just from the starting p- position of the Roy Lopez, just, you know, E4, E5, 9 of 3, Knight C6, Bishop B5. From there, just like what are the eight, you know, top latest games and analyze them. And basically, you know, I, I, I feel like I wasn't sure what was happening, what would happen. Actually, I felt like in that rating bracket, maybe some people would be pretty booked up. But actually, it turned out that it was, you know, again, like, like really not, not following the accepted theory very much at all. Um, the average, the average number of like moves that you could consider theory that they followed was six. So, so not six from the beginning of the Royal Lopez, but like six total. So Royal Lopez would like start at move three on average, they played like three more moves of theory and then sort of veered off, um, you know, and, and with like some weird stuff. So like, even on the very first move, I think in two of the games, someone played queen F six which is, you know, which is like a weird move, you know, sort of classic, like bringing the, the queen out too early, kind of 
kind of move that's you know you has never really been seen in in grandmaster games so so basically it was um just just from everything i've been been able to see including in that in that little sort of experiment um yeah i mean there's just so many possibilities in chess that that people don't manage to follow memorized lines right like like the game just veers off into some path and i think that's true 2000 level that's like when i play otb tournaments like I'm rated um, a little over 2,400 USCF, like 2,300 FIDE. In my games, it's rarely a theoretical battle. Usually me or my opponent or both are obviously out of our preparation pretty early on. Like, and if I kind of look around at the boards next to me that are similar rating, like same thing, like people are improvising right. early on. Um, people are like visibly, you, know, you can tell by their posture, by how much, how much time they're using on the clock that they're out of their comfort zone. So I just... Yeah, I just don't see this this game happening where people are are super super well prepared for everything very often. But you you know what I think it is that fear. It's from chessable. I mean, I I'm no no disrespect to chessable intended at all. But I think you know when you have these like lifetime repertoires that are like marketed towards you know club players, then they think, oh, I can't learn the Ray Lopez because you know I have to get this Jan Gustafsson course and it's so so dense. And meanwhile, like and this is actually why. I was just like, it's anecdotally speaking, like the first openings I ever learned were the Dragon Sicilian and the King's Indian from my chess coach uh, when I just started. And the Dragon is because, you know, it's a fun open, not the Accelerated Dragon, just Mainline Dragon and the mm -hmm. King's Indian. And it's just like, you know, you have a very similar setup both ways. And then I remember with the King's Indian, I remember my coach saying something like, oh, it's like a theory landmine. And I was losing a bunch of games. So I was like, okay, this is a long time ago when I was really just getting started with chess. Um, and I always like just, wanted to play it deep down and I, I never really had like the right response for d4 until i started playing it again and i've noticed the exact same thing i didn't buy any big course for the king's indian i was just like i'm just gonna start playing it i did end up buying this like this uh, alex kolovich uh course on chessable but that one is literally called king's indian simplified and the idea mm -hmm. is not to have any dense lines to memorize it's mostly teaching like ideas through lines Nevertheless, my point is that, like, I, I think you're on the money, and it's cool that you had some kind of evidence for that. And I think, like, when it comes to, like, the, the chess openings in general, I, actually, I don't know if you, uh, I don't know if you watch, like, Daniel Naraditsky at all. I'm going to kind of plagiarize him. <laughs> a, had... a little bit, but yeah, I don't, I don't actually find myself um, spending a ton of time, like, watching the streamers, not, not because I don't right. like them, but just there's only so many hours in the day for, for chess. Well, well, two Stanford alumni. You know, that's right yeah stanford chess too right um yeah i did my homework on this podcast all right wow chess. impressive <laughs> yeah. anyway um yeah the thing he, he said that i thought was fascinating is in his recent speedrun video um i don't know how recent it's going to be by the time this is out but he's talking about kind of like how you know back when he like a couple of years ago before this big chess boom how you know the the, the mark or like even like 10 years ago right every like top level game was like uh you know night or for something like that like in this like theory of theory stuff and he his theory is, is twofold he said basically like since magnus has come on the scene and been so dominant magnus's approach towards the opening is not necessarily to fight in a theory battle it's just to get in a position that he knows better than you what that looks like in practice is like you know you'll have novelties in a lot of top level games now even we can look at tata steel like a lot of novelties coming out on like you know move five move six or something like that um, and or maybe even not novelties, but rare moves like stuff that's not common. And the idea, like 
at the top level now, according to Tanya, which I like, I think is a prescient observation, um, is that like uh, the philosophy now is just to get a position that you know better than your opponent, not necessarily to fight within theory. And that the important thing about this is that there's been a trickle down effect. And that's why systems like the London have become so popular in recent years or like basically because it's that kind of same philosophy to like be system oriented and to play simpler stuff trickles down. And then to put it all together, so you have this kind of thing where everybody's playing simple stuff. And so you think like, oh yeah, I'm an improving player. I got to start playing some more serious, big, big adult openings, you know, like, uh, like, you know, the Roy Lopez, of course. Um, and yeah, it, I, I just think it's, it's really cool. Like, um, so one thing I was also wondering, I know you did this for the Roy Lopez, but did you actually consider looking at other openings as well? Um, I haven't done that that specifically yeah but that would be interesting and it, i mean it is something you could sort of i mean i did it in very in a sort of like very like back of the envelope like eyeball way just like me personally looking at eight games but you can imagine doing it on a bigger scale with more openings um yeah just as so so to sort of talk about a few of the things you said so i one thing i should probably say is i am i i, I am a consultant at chessable so just sort of like full disclosure um but you know i mean i think you clearly make a valid point about like these lines um Oh, and you know, I love chess bowl. I'm, I'm yeah. we're sponsored by Play Magnus Group as well. Aim Chess, yeah. you know, part of the family. I'm 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 not a I, I like I don't think that it's like it's a problem. Like I own like six lifetime repertoires. <laughs> like I'm yeah, not so a, I, no no, but I think it's you know you're, you're definitely right that um it's it can be overwhelming, and I think for most players, just like you know, reading that reading a chessable course cover to cover, so to speak, like memorizing all thousand lines is not going to be an efficient way to use it. Um, right. And I mean, I do think you could also say the same thing about like a lot of traditional opening books too, is like, you know, you see opening books out there, they're like 300, 400 pages. And I think they have a similar problem. It's like, it's kind of hard to imagine like which chess player is really going to spend their time most effectively by, by reading 400 pages cover to cover of, of opening lines. So, I mean, what I usually like to, what I like to do with chessable courses, like sort of my personal strategy is usually I'll go through uh, the quick starter and I will actually like, like learn all those lines, but then I just like to start playing the opening in blitz games and I'll, I'll use the rest of the course as, as more of a reference. And, you know, if I encounter a line on the, someone plays something against me, I don't know how to respond. Then I'll look it up um, in the course. So this is actually one, you know, one of the things I'm working on at Chessable is like, how can we, help users like prioritize their study a little bit better so it feels more relevant and um they're able to focus on the their time on the parts of the course that are most important and relevant for them um i actually had an idea yeah. for this i mean i don't know who to talk to at chess Bowl, but maybe we'll get this on the podcast because yeah. what if you know i saw with aim chess that you can like full disclosure like i said i have sponsored by aim chess use code david 30 to get 30 percent off your first month of aim chess by the way um, with that out of the way, with AimChess, you can like plug in your username on chess.com, Lee Chess, Chess24, wherever you play, and get like, you know, all this data about yourself. You know, if I'm yeah. learning the Carol Khan, right? Like, mm -hmm. if I'm learning the Carol Khan and I'm doing this Carol Khan, Erwin Lamy, Lifetime Repertoires, um, like, it would be cool if, like, if you lost a game, that Chess will be like, hey, you missed this move that's in your course. And then mm -hmm. you could prioritize that line. Yeah. That is actually, no, that's like, exactly the kind of things we're we're working on i don't i don't want to like promise anything too specific yeah, that's course, not like definitely on the roadmap but definitely those are those are absolutely like the lines we're um thinking along um 
Yeah. And then as far you know, what, what you were saying about um, Daniel Naradisky, like, yeah, I think, I mean, I think this is also like the influence of engines, which is that if you look at almost any opening position with um, uh, uh, an, like a modern engine, there's many moves that are just about as good as like the most common theoretical moves or, you know, maybe a little worse, but not that much. Like I was, you know, in the Karakana, I was just looking at in, in the Panov variation, um, yeah, it's probably like not good podcasting to, um, you know, go, go, go deep into some variation, but basically there's, there's, there's like a very famous common like Tabia position in the Panov where traditionally black plays Bishop G4, white plays Queen B3, and there's like a very famous forcing line that basically um, leads to, to a draw if, if you really know what you're doing. But um, it's a pretty weird line. Like white can try many different things that you have to know how to respond to. And you know, you're gonna, you're gonna have a hard time. Like white has many, many ways to force a draw. And if you mess something up, like it involves black's king running around the board. So if you mess something up, like you will lose very quickly. But what's weird about it is I was just looking at it and Bishop G4, you know, I mean, it's going to depend on which stockfish you run and how long you let it run. But if you just open up stockfish on Lee chess, Bishop G4, the start of the line is not in its top five moves. Wow. So there's, you know, there, like the quote unquote book line. It's not bad according to the computer, but it's far from the only option. And I would like, from my perspective as a practical, like as, as a non-chess professional, it's like wildly impractical. Like I would almost rather play any other move. Um, but I think that's actually pretty common. Like, you know, just, just what is possible is, is kind of exploding. Um, I think it, it, it I, I think it kind of goes back to like opening books too. Like, I don't know. I don't know if you've been playing chess, like long enough to remember like MCO modern chess openings. Um, I, I only started playing chess in like 2019. Yeah. So there used to be like, it's not really, actually it might still be popular, but, but it used to be more sort of popular. There's, this is but modern chess opening. It was like this giant tome that was just like the idea was basically like all of opening theory in one book. And so it's just, you know, every page was like sort of this weird cryptic, just lines and lines and lines and lines. Um, but that's just because of the limitations of writing the book like that, you have to choose which lines to in include. And even though it's a very thick book, clearly it's a tiny, tiny minuscule fraction of like the possibilities that are legal in chess. So you have this small set of lines that are the quote unquote book book lines, but like they're kind of random and arbitrary. It's just, you know, it's just like whatever line someone chose to put in there. And if you check it with like modern computers, a lot of the lines will be wrong. But I think that like the limitation of like a book format gave people, people believe there is like literally a book line. And if you stray from that, you will just like lose the game on the spot. But, right. you know, it turns out chess doesn't work that way at all. Like in a lot of opening positions, there's like four or five, six playable moves. So, you know, if, if there's one line you think is, is the book line, your opponent plays something different and you're expecting to win the game on the spot, you'll probably be disappointed a lot of the time because unless they made an outright blunder, like that's just sort of not how chess works. Yeah, it's no, but that, that's actually, that's very true. I, I also like, and in general, I mean, I talked about this with, with uh, my friends on the Chess Pit podcast but we were kind of talking something along these lines. How you know, there's a lot of people. I think there's just like this energy into like new, that the new chess players or newer chess players are bringing, where they're you know they're trying really hard to improve. And I think part of that 
coin is, you know, trying to really work hard on the so-called main lines. And, I, I, you know, I think it is it is really true that uh, you, you don't really need that. I mean, if you just want to play an opening, if you know it's like, you know, it's not as like the Grob or something, and you're not trying to play the Grob in like a serious game. Like, even the Grob, I mean, you know, probably you could probably still get some nice wins. Out of the <laughs> Blitz. I think that, I mean, you, you might be able to win with it. I, I would like... Almost everything is fine. I, I think once you get to the drop one G four, it does. It probably does lose by force. So I think that's like sort of like the border, or at least it's like if you just analyze it with a computer and play the normal moves for black, it's super bad news for white. But but it's like you have to go that weird to get to something yeah, that's just, actually that's objectively quite bad. And so then it all comes to the beginning, which is like you know the the, the principles that people. Well, you know I. I I saw some random YouTube comments about chess, or maybe it was like, uh, yeah, it, it, I think it was like about, you know, the ideal way to study chess would be to just find the best line, right? That there's some line that solves chess, a theoretical thing. Maybe it's an E4, D4, I don't know. Maybe there's this one line where it's proven computers can play this again and again, that either chess is a draw, chess is a win, chess is a loss. That's like for, for white, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, you can't actually do that because, like you said, chess is way too deep, and so that's why we have our chess principles, right? Control the center, develop your pieces. That's like the common knowledge, and you save the calculation you need for the bursts where it's important. You know, tactics, the you know the end game stuff. That's where it's going to matter. And um, I just think it's important not to lose sight of that. There's a lot of focus on openings these days, but like uh, I know from my experience, like, like learning chess. I think my openings were, because of Chessable, my openings were incredibly strong. I gained, like, over the pandemic, probably, like, 300, 400 ELO just from seriously working on openings. And then I found that my positional understanding, my endgame understanding, was, you know, at the level of, like, a 1200. And if I didn't get the exact position or a similar position from one of these opening books, like, the, whether it was, like, a John Bartholomew Scandi or, you know, the Lifetime Repertoires, Carol Khan, you know, whatever books I was looking at, uh, I would just be dead lost every time. So... Chess is, I guess, the moral of the story is chess is a hard game. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think you can also, um, you could, you could kind of use the same argument to, to to argue for a lot of different openings because, in some, in some like, uh, you know, ultimately objective sense, um, there's only three real chess evaluations: like winning for white, winning for black, or draw. All the other evaluations, you know, even the computer ones like the centipons, are are kind of subjective in that sense. So probably, you know, if you ha if I had to guess, I'd say like probably with perfect play, all the all the major openings are draws. Like the Roy Lopez is a draw, the Italians a draw, the French is a draw, Caracon. Starting from all those positions, um, they're probably all draws. And you actually you actually see that in like the computer tournaments, um, like the TCEC where they where they have computers play against each other. They usually have them play from from set starting positions. In various openings um yeah and the majority of games are drawn so in that sense it's like maybe objectively these openings are all equally good so you can take your pick based on your own preference your own taste what you think maybe what you think your opponent is not ready for um yeah so i think that, like the traditional knowledge of like there's this there's these very few openings that are better than everything else that's probably not entirely backed up by sort of the underlying logic of chess right and even like stuff with it i mean you know even when you watch this is the other thing i mean i mean but this is just like you know chess in the age of computers you're watching a game 
like Le- Levy Rosman right now. He's trying to get his GM norm. And as of now, it seems like he's out of the race for this one. But now he's playing a strong GM like Nicholas Theodoru. As of right now, he's down upon. It's a drawn Bishop endgame. Uh, otherwise, you know, it's, there's Brooks on the board, but the Rooks will come off. As of me saying this, if maybe it's not a disaster. The engine says like minus 0.2. Now you go into the Lee Chess comments and it's everybody saying, oh, Levy sucks. You know, this is dead lost. You know, if you if you study chess uh, end games to any degree, you know, you know, as long as the rooks come off the board, black can have can be down upon or whatever up upon. If opposite color bishops, it's going to end in a draw. So that's like the kind of I I think even the stuff with the engine evaluation, people like I don't want to play the king's Indian because the engine says that in my favorite line it's like plus one for white. But what does that actually mean? It's like you said, the the engine is in a way unless there's like a forcing win. The engine is is being like kind of subjective in a way, like it's looking at all the lines and evaluating it that way. But unless there's like a forced tactical win at move ten, like it's not a dead loss. You just if you need to find that that's where the active play and all that kind of you know chess comes in. Yeah, and to, to go back to something else you said about the King's Indian of like you know just that it was what what you wanted to play, um, and you liked it. Here's here's where I maybe go. I sort of favor like a less data-driven perspective is like, I would say the single most important criterion for, for choosing an opening for most people is just like, do you literally, do you like it? Exactly. Because, you know, like if I, if I manage to go from 2,400 to 2,500, that's not really going to change my life. Like if someone, someone goes from 1,700 to 1,800, like for most of us, like probably for most people listening to this podcast, like we're basically doing chess because we like it. So there's kind of no point to like to playing some opening you don't like because like someone said it's better or something like that. Um, yeah. So, so it's like, yeah, if, if you like the Kings Indian, you enjoy it, why not? And also the, so, some openings seem to like attract more discussion or controversy. Like the London is one, the Kings Indian is one. My favorite I've, is I've the heard... Queens Indian because the Queens Indian apparently was refuted by Stockfish. Cause that's like, or it was refuted by alpha zero. Cause that was like the title of some, like Antonio Radic video at Mator. And ever since then, I've recommended the Queen's Indian to friends because I say it's really simple to play. A lot of the positions will be very similar. And the first thing I'll hear from friends who are getting into chess is, oh, but wasn't that refuted by Stockfish? Or sorry, wasn't that refuted by Alpha Zero? No, there's 2700s playing it now. Like, like, what are you talking about? Like, it's a good opening. Okay, okay. Yeah. It has its pros and cons, like any other opening, you know, could be draws and something, but... But yeah, that's like just the kind of like like you said, like some there's just these like reputations on the internet for certain openings. It's just like crazy. Yeah, and the the Kings Indian is that's another one where I've heard people say it's refuted, but I've never I've never seen someone demonstrate the line that that is meant to to refute it. Um, exactly. That's probably the, the Kings Indian is probably the most famous one where um, the computer evaluations are are sort of known to be unreliable in a lot of like. Like there seems to be something specifically about this very long-term kingside attacking potential that Black has in the King's Indian that that even computers now don't um, don't always appreciate from a distance. Yeah, I mean, I'd be but, shocked if the King's Indian wasn't a draw with perfect play. Like, I mean, why is it? It can't be that bad. It just can't be. Yeah, I think. Well, I, it seems like the computer like. So, so like classical chess, you know, you occupy the center, then hypermodern chess, you do your fianchetto and stuff and, and sort of snipe at the center. It seems like 
the computers are pr pretty well on the side that like actually occupying the center is good. So, so I think maybe for like from a thousand foot view, that's that's sort of the computers. That's what the computers don't like about the King's Indian. Um, but even so, it's clearly a very but like if if you look at the stores, which I mean, this is this is maybe like what what my 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 biggest point with chess and data is I think chess like traditionally chess analysis is all about we analyze you know either on our own as humans or with the engines, but we sort of try to find the truth about chess. And what I'm trying to say is it's also helpful to take like take a data-driven perspective where you look at what actually happens in actual games between humans. And like the King's Indian seems to store pretty okay. So right. um, you know, if you like it, you can still play it. You do like one thing about the King's Indian as well is like, like with any opening, you're not gonna win every game, but the games you do win tend to be very stylish and like satisfying. So I think for some people, even if they score a bit worse, like it's, it's kind of worth it for them to like chase those like really memorable wins. Right, exactly. And even like, I got this book, um, Happy Birthday, Gopal Menon, but he, uh, he recommended this uh, King's Indian Warfare by Grandmaster Elias Mirren. And I, I have the book now. Um, and uh, Elias Mirren, he has his, what, 50 greatest wins with the King's Indian. And he also has two losses. Because he loved those losses so much in the King's Indian, even though he lost the game, but it was such a good game, and it like takes two to tango. And I think that's on the like you're on the money about that because I don't even mind losing the King's Indian if it was a well fought game. Whereas in other openings that I tried with D4, like I tried the Queen's Gambit accepted, and I just didn't know how to play it, and it, like you just get smothered in the center, you positionally, and no counterplay. It sucks. At least the King's Indian, you have some sacrifices you can try. You have some pawn pushes. There was some quote, I think maybe it, it might've been erroneous. I'm not sure, but so, somebody said like the King's Indian is the only opening where you can be literally one move away from resigning and then win the game, you know, cause there, there are a lot of, even like, even at the top level, you know, there's, there's like an Anand Nakamura game where like the computer saying like plus five or something, but like Nakamura still has like this, like weird King side attack going and like some, you know, Anand misses one move. Yeah, it's and a like crazy game. He's in checkmate. Yeah, that's that. They have a chess.com. I think they have a chess.com like lesson on like Nakamura's best Kings Indian games, and I think that's one of them. I, I like I went through, if I recall correctly. Yeah, but, but you know that's the other thing. Like I actually read before we did this call. I actually read your Nate Solon.github.io, and I saw you had this tutorial on how to like install like a chess package with an engine on your console like okay now it's going to get a little technical with coding because i code for work okay but you know i use python for work and i was thinking i don't know how easy this would be but let's you you looked at eight games in the roy lopez right and you just mm -hmm. kind of did some cursory analysis of like what kind of tactics are there what if you expanded that still you take it within a rating range but you expanded really to like the you know thousands of games in just you know the position Obviously, this would take a lot of work. Maybe you need to look at specific sidelines, but like, I wonder, like, you could look for like the recurrent tactics that people miss. You know, what are the moves that cause a big evaluation shift? For instance, just having like these huge, like, uh, huge, like a CSV file of like all these results and the the moves. I guess you could take something like that, and just from that, you'll find the, the same repetition of tactics, right? Some knight takes e4 tactic that all these people miss that leads some losses or a drop in the engine evaluation. And then you take all those kinds of combinations in your specific opening and you teach those specific tactics. 
that's the thing that I think matters more when you're learning an opening. What are the tactics? What are the ideas? Opening specific tactics, like the most common um, right. mistakes or tactics in an opening. Yeah, no, I love that idea. And that's actually, I mean, part of, I, I sort of created that tutorial because I think. Um, I'm going to try it. I, I, oh, yeah, no. I would love to see pe more people do like chess data research because um, I think, I mean, you know, if you're coming, if you're starting at least knowing a little bit of coding, like I mostly use Python, but so, so that's kind of what I'm doing it with. But I mean, I think Python's one of the easiest languages to learn. I think chess is like actually a really fun and easy thing to, to work with. I mean, assuming you like chess and like you're a chess player and you're into it, but the data is readily available. Like you can get started, like, like looking at things and exploring pretty easily. So yeah, definitely. I think there, there's um, one resource that's really cool is um, Lee Chess pub, like gives away um, these these monthly databases uh, of like literally every game that's played on Lee Chess in a month. Um, so they're actually huge. Like they're like when you decompress these things, they're like over two hundred gigabytes. So the, that's crazy. That might that might not be where you want to start because at that point, it, it's actually a little bit of a you know, you need to give some some, some thought to how, how you like work with a file that big. So you don't have to start with that, but it's it's just interesting that like a resource like that is available. Um, there's also, there's a chess player. I, I, I Maybe it might've been Mikhail Tal like a long time ago, but it, or maybe someone from more recently, but I, I remember the one, like uh, when I start, got started with chess, there's some like famous chess player who used to like review, like obviously like top level games, but he would also review like the club level games for ideas and just use them on his opponents because uh, you find interesting stuff. And you know that even in these databases, people say, "Oh, I don't, I don't need sixteen hundred gameplay." But yeah, I, one of the funniest things to me was you know when they called like let's say game one of the World Chess Championship this like novelty Knight A five that Magnus uncorked was actually played twice and on Lee Chess like a, a year before. <laughs> you know, like is it like. They're not really, I mean, they're novelties, sure, but somebody else had that idea and, and you know, somebody could have used that and say, hey, this isn't so bad. I mean, Magnus got a draw and like this crazy, like sharp sideline yeah. of the Roy Lopez. Yeah, I think this this really gets to sort of the data and analytics perspective. Again, like traditional chess, like, well, if you're sort of searching for the, the truth in chess, whatever that would be, I guess maybe you'd only want to look at top level games. But yeah, I'm really interested in like what works for players of all levels. Also, it's sort of more, I think it's more of a poker poker inspired perspective as well of like I'm you know I'm playing you know I'm I'm interested in playing with and against players of all levels like what what is actually happening what's the meta game um and I think yeah I think all, there's probably for for most players like analysis of of um games games of players of all levels would really be helpful like I know, you know, Dan Heisman is like one coach who does that, like analyzes a lot of club players' games. There's some books that do that, but but maybe not as many as there should be because I think for most people, like, you know, Matt, Magnus Carlsen's games are probably not the best ones to learn from because like at that super GM level, you, you get, you know, they get into some position and maybe, you know, there's sort of like a standard plan A in that position but both sides know that. So they, they're not going to be defeated by plan A and like, same for like plan B, C, like all the way up to Z. So, so like what you see when like Magnus plays like Nippon Miyachi is like both sides, like doing some sort of like weird plan Z to sort of try to outmaneuver each other. But if you don't know the whole history of like ABC leading up to that, really hard to make any sense of that. Right. 
Um, so yeah, I think often you can get a lot more of um, like sometimes in open tournaments, like, you know, like the 2,500 versus 2,200 games, because at that level, you'll see like often the 2,200 player maybe doesn't know quite where to put their pieces or really quite where to play, how to play the middle game. And they'll just get steamrolled by like the, you know, like, like the main idea in the position, which like, that's never going to happen to Magnus because he knows that. And even, yeah. Yeah. I was also going to say like, like uh, you, you see, you see this, like, like, I I mean, I think Magnus plays like an alien too. That doesn't make it any easier. Like they're just, because it was precisely like what you said because of these plants, like, uh, and, and I, something you said just like rung a bell for me because I watch, as as people know on the podcast, I watch a lot of Hikaru Nakamura streams. I've been watching his streams since he started streaming, basically. Um, and uh, I've paid attention to something that he said a lot recently when he's watching games. He was like, oh, this piece doesn't belong there. And he, I don't know why it doesn't belong somewhere. But, you know, the, it's interesting how he talks about, like, for example, this Karyak and Karwana game yesterday. I don't want to get too technical on the podcast, but I think it ended up in a draw. But Nakamura said, you know, the engine said Fabi had some big positional advantage. But, and Nakamura and Benjamin Bach, two grandmasters, strong grandmasters, both said, you know, if Karyakin can get his pieces to the right squares, it's going to be a draw. And because the engine evaluation is saying, okay, there's this line that they have to go for. But practically speaking, humans will not play like that. And so it's precisely like you said, like looking for where to put the pieces, looking for that kind of plan. And that, that's where, like, again, that's where chess comes in. Yeah, I think I've, I've noticed this. This seems to be something that really differentiates like grandmasters, I think, from other players is strategic knowledge, but not not like the super big picture strategic knowledge of like control the center, you know, control an open file rooks on the seventh, like those things that apply in every position. But the more specific granular stuff of like in this opening, in this structure, how do I arrange my pieces? Right. Um. And I really noticed that, you know, when like I play a fair amount of Blitz online, you know, like titled Tuesday, like this event on chess.com for title players, like I get a chance to play against strong players. Actually, I've I've run into Hikaru a few times in titled Tuesday um, with with not good results for me. But uh, like final boss music when you when you were (laughs) I think I I think I played him twice. The first time I was very nervous and I just like blundered a piece on move. um, Yeah. you know, like move 10 or something. So mm-hmm. the second, the second time was a better game. Like it, you know, got into the middle game, maneuvered a bit, but he was, he was really playing a lot faster than me. So at some point I was like under a lot of pressure. And What's your apart. best finish in title Tuesday, by the way? I think, um, so it's 11 rounds. I think, um, I might've gotten eight points once, like somewhere between like seven and eight points. That's um, very good. But I mean, it's, it's fun. Like, I think it's fun to like, play players you've heard of and i think for players of all levels it's definitely good to um um play just play players who are better than you right because like you know it's it's not just they're better than you it's like there's there's a feeling that you can sense your opponent is aware of more and it just forces you to play better to sort of like play a little bit out of your comfort zone um so yeah i think i mean obviously this is not I want to do an experiment. I mean, I don't know if this is allowed, but like if I could get like a titled player's account and say, you know, some unnamed club player goes into title Tuesday, how would I score? Could I even get a half a point? I mean, I would bet probably not. 
but I think it would be a fun experiment. And I also, that's the only reason why I want a, a title is so I could play Title Tuesday, etc. Leech has titled Arena. Because it just seems like that that's like, you can really like, uh, I mean, how often do you get to play like a title player online? Like, you know, I'm always looking for like some, some FM that I can like hunt down and, and, and try to play. In a yeah, well, and, like, I mean, I guess if you, if you get your online blitz ratings high enough, then, then potentially all the time. I've started to get there actually. I've, 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 this year was a year I actually started to run into like the occasional CMNM, which is cool. It's really cool. Cause I mean, it's, uh, you know, it, it feels, it feels good. Actually, I have another story that I was just remember. Like, I don't think I have to listen to the podcast, but my coach, uh, I was, when I was home in New York last month, I was supposed to do less with my coach. And uh, I call him on Zoom and he says, David, I'm sorry, I'm playing Hikaru right now. So he <laughs> matched with Hikaru on, uh, on, on, uh, he matched with Hikaru on uh, just like I guess in the in the blitz pool, and then he played two games with Hikaru. He was completely winning in one, and then I remember hearing him talk about like my, my coach was talking about playing Hikaru. Like, and I meanwhile I'm sitting here with my popcorn watching Hikaru stream, and Hikaru's going like, "Oh, I shouldn't have allowed this, oh brother," <laughs> you know. I, so I, I'm like seeing this, and I, I so I'm getting like the two person perspective, and then. Uh, like my coach, he said something, and I've always noticed this about like Hikaru and other strong grandmasters. He's like, "How come I have a completely winning position in this blitz game, like plus five or whatever?" And then Hikaru just finds every tricky move, like every tricky move accelerates on the clock. I mean, that's like crazy, crazy, crazy skill that to have. And he lost both games. <laughs> and then Hikaru said, "I can't play him more because I can't adopt him." And that was it. <laughs> yeah. That's um. No, I think that's that's really Hikaru's strength. Is like he plays really fast and super tricky and never blundered like someone i think maybe like Jan gustafson or something like like had this observation about hikaru it's like i've never seen him blunder like most of us like you know even very strong players like just like randomly drop pieces and blitz sometimes like i guess hikaru has just played so much bullet and like his instincts are so refined that like I just don't, you know, I've seen him play so many games. I don't know if I've ever seen him just straight up hang a, hang a piece. It's so hard. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's true. Like, I, can, I mean, occasionally, like, uh, during, like, a long blitz session, he'll hang a queen, something against, like, Fedeseev or something, like, a really, really strong player. But you're right. I mean, I mean, right now he's doing, like, a, like a queen sack speed run in blitz where he's just giving up his queen. And he's, I mean, he, I thought, yeah, he's not going to get past, like, you know, 1,200, 1,500. He's, like, I think 1,800 right now. Mm-hmm. Like sacking his, how does that make me feel? <laughs> like I, I'm, I'm 1800 blitz. Like what the hell? Like you can really just, you know, we're that bad that like a GM can just give a queen for like a, a piece and and still beat us. Like that's that's nuts. Like that's really crazy. Yeah, I think, I mean, maybe part of it. There's a, another big, um, a big thing I've noticed about um, when you start to play against like really stronger players, like especially GMs, is they're very, very resilient. So most players, you know, I, I didn't sort of like realize this until I started playing stronger players, but, but, but then for, with that perspective, you start to realize that like at lower levels, you don't necessarily have to like ha- show a lot of technique to win a, a, like a winning game because many players will sort of beat themselves. Like once you have a big advantage, they'll sort of collapse or lash out. So you can just sort of sit on your, your, your advantage and you don't necessarily need to come up with like a big plan of how to win the game because it'll, they'll just make another mistake and you can just sort of keep playing the obvious moves and you win the game. But then when you, when you play with someone who doesn't get discouraged and is very resilient and will, you know, will literally just sit there and do nothing if they have to, you start to, it's actually like, it can be very hard to, um, 
to actually win a winning position. I mean, you'll see if, like, if you try to play, play out a winning position against Stockfish, especially, which is obviously even stronger, it, it'll be weirdly hard, even from positions that are like plus five or something, because right. it'll, it'll just come up with all these resources that seem completely random. But then it's like you try to win a different way, and now it has all these other resources. You, you sort of realize how much potential there is in chess of like, every position hangs on these like weird hidden tactics that, you know, that you weren't anticipating. And that, you know, it's funny because I, I can, I can, I can tell a story about this. Uh, I mean, Anish and Magnus played today and Anish had, you know, this Magnus, I don't know if it was some novelty from the world championship prep or something. I Fiddler, Fiddler asked Gustafsson and he said, it's not, but he could be lying. I mean, who knows, you know, but it's some weird Catalan rook exchange sacrifice and Magnus like Russian. And again, I'm watching the coverage and I switched between streams. And when Ikaru and Bach were looking at this thing, what were they saying? This is exactly what you're saying. They're saying, how does Anish save this position? That's what they were saying. You know, the engine says plus two or whatever, and everybody on Twitter is like, phone it, you know, Magnus 2900, that's it. And the grandmasters are sitting and they're looking deep on, just like if they were in the seat with Anish, like if they were in his position, they're looking at every possible move to give them some chance of staying alive. And they look deep and they say, okay, this is still, engine says this, but okay, so then I'm going into my little rapid pool and I hang a piece against uh, somebody who's like 2050 or something right, rapid. And I'm like, I could, you know, normally I would resign, but I was thinking precisely about what they were saying. And I was like, okay, how can I survive this position? That's literally what I was telling myself. Your boy won the game. Nice. There you go. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, the resilience is huge. Like, and, and, and I think that the, really the reason why this goes all the way back full circle is because of like the way that like people are taught chess today in terms of like like there's a number to every position you're down a piece you're down minus three you know but that's you you can still find resources you can still trick people that's why i had um master master jeremy kane on on my podcast and he brought this book about which is basically it basically teaches you how to be a resilient chess player and there isn't really that much material like that so I, I really like the book. I actually like I'm almost done with the book. Like I've been doing a couple of exercises every day from that. And it teaches you just to find resources that, like in lost positions and drawn positions that are tough. Like that's a good skill to have. And that's an, kind of another thing that like, you know, it's, it's important to work on. But like, where do you even train that? Yeah, I think I, I actually I just talked to Jeremy recently, too. Um, yeah. So so like, yeah, he's an awesome, awesome blitz player. Um, I think there's another one. There's maybe like a. Um, like a David Smirden book about swindles, which a lot of people liked, but yeah, probably, probably not, not as many chess, far, far more chess resources about trying to build, you know, like seeing tactical opportunities, um, not as many about, uh, um, yeah, like, like just sort of resilience fighting back, like how to, because when you get into someone how, how to trick someone, that's not the computer won't really tell you that because now you're in this sort of subjective human psychology, what people can see. Um, not yeah, not a lot of resources about like trip tricks and traps. That's more right. You kind of get that from just from playing chess. And even if you look at a computer, like I also again I had a game yesterday where I was up like a rook and something, and. I, when I was analyzing the game, I found that there was two lines from my opponent. Like he's, he had some background checkmate, and he had basically two moves that with that prevent force mate. And one of them is just like the engine says minus seventeen or whatever, and you just play on. 
what he chose was I thought was correct. It basically the engine evaluation is like minus 60, like dead lost. You lose all your pieces, but only if I had to find three only moves in a row. So what are you going to pick? But that you don't see that if you're just looking at the engine. But meanwhile, like, yeah, you know, you need to find three only moves in a row, which, okay, they weren't that hard for me. But still, I mean, that's, that's, that's the kind of move you have to play, practically speaking. It's not about the engine number. It's kind of about what gives you chances to win. Because chess, you want to win games. You don't, again, I had this on, on my podcast episode with the Chess Pit podcast. You know, chess, why you play chess, like, it's fun to win. It's not just about the, the rating. You know, rating could be anything, but you could start with the 3,000 rating and hop in the blitz pool and lose every single game, and that's not going to feel good. So it's all about winning games. So how do you win games? Yeah, and I, I mean, there, there's a lot of ways that the, the engine, I mean, the, the engines, or at least Stockfish, the engines we have now are really completely built from the bottom up to be strong chess players, to, you know, to ultimately produce strong chess moves. They're really not built to like explain themselves to humans. Yeah. Right. So this is, this is one of the biggest ways is they, whether there's one extremely narrow path to, to a evaluation or like any move will do, it doesn't affect. Their, their evaluation is completely based on their main line. Um, so it doesn't, tell, it doesn't tell you anything about the practical. And that's something that I think like, you know, that this stuff with Python could help because you can even, you could, you can imagine a, a world where you can kind of statistically weight different lines and say, okay, what's a, what's like a blunder probability, you know? Yeah. I think this, this is definitely, this is an idea. I think a, a few people have had is like, you know, maybe you look at like like the standard deviation and the evaluations, the lines, or you look at how many options, um, like how how close the next best options are to the best move. It gets a little bit tricky because, um, you know, you could have a position with like a forced recapture where there's there's only one good move and all the other moves are um, much worse. But it's a recapture, so it's obvious so you're going to play that. So it's like it's a little more nuanced in that you're maybe looking for positions where there's a, both there's a narrow path to, to maintain the evaluation and it's not obvious. Um, but definitely there are like some, you know, you could think of some possibilities to try to, to try to achieve that. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it feels like you're like a, like a kindred spirit in a way, because I really like, uh, I study astronomy and astronomy is, you know, astrophysics especially is like, uh, well, I guess both. Astronomy is more like observations. Astrophysics is more like the math. But nevertheless, both of them have, in the computer age, have become purely data science, like 90% data science. So all the work I do is basically data science. I work with big data. And so I'm always like trying to think, like, how, how can you take that and like apply it to chess? Because, I mean, it seems like, you know, like you were saying before, the traditional approach to analyzing chess is, you know, open some games, look for the instructive moments. But you can kind of speed it up if you have these big samples of chess games or even the way we evaluate chess positions. I think there's there's work that could be done in that regard. Even like Team Magnus, when they pick openings, um, I, I, I was reading like this is started with Anand, but like uh, with Team Anand with, with Peter Heine Nielsen, like one of the things that he pioneered, uh, I don't know if he like pioneered exactly, but at least on the world championship level was like looking for lines to play and to prepare that are like, you know, your opponent needs to find only moves or difficult moves. Like that matters. And that was stuff that they could do with computers that was a lot harder before then. So it's definitely possible. Yeah, I think, um, well, like, I, you know, one, one great resource that I don't know if everyone knows about is like, like the Lee Chess Opening Explorer. They actually just added some settings to that. So now you can do um, 
master games, Lee chess games, or your own games. Or others so that, too, to prepare yeah. for people. Yeah, that, so that's an interesting one to play around with, like setting the different rating ranges. And, and you do find if you just play around from, with that and um, adjust the rating ranges, like the most common moves and which moves are su successful, you'll see scenarios where they change drastically at different rating levels. Yeah, like what openings are popular too. That's also mm -hmm. really, really cool to look at how, you know, yeah. things like the Scandinavian are so much more popular at the lower levels. And, and that's actually, I, it. I, I've also become at like, I've gotten really into, into like astrophysics podcasts lately. So yeah, maybe that's a, a different time. Maybe you'll have to tell me, tell me more about that. But yeah, I mean, like Sean Carroll's podcast and like a few other ones. Actually, you know, uh, I haven't actually, I don't think I've ever listened to an astronomy podcast. I had to make a podcast episode for a class at Wesleyan, um, but that was it. For, and I made it about astronomy. You can, you guys can search it up. You can find it in the deep, dark corners of SoundCloud. I'm never sharing that with the public. I mean, if you want to <laughs> wanna find it and learn about how to become a, an astronomer in, in college, you can, you, can, uh, you can search that up. It's somewhere on the internet. Shout out Mason. Mason and I recorded that. But um, yeah, I don't... I, you know, but I, I think uh, like that is what I really enjoy about astronomy, actually, because I was never that good at physics and I was actually never that good at computer science. But I like the idea of being you know, able to use both. And so you can kind of do like this, this, this nice blend of math and computer science, at least in the specific field that I'm working in right now. So but I, yeah, I've always wondered, like, like, how can I actually like kind of apply that? And so today I'm like looking, you know, I'm doing my research for the episode and I see you've done this tutorial on like the chess Python package. And I'm like, hallelujah, like this has made my whole Yeah, life. no, I hope you do something because you know what? I, I wrote this tweet thread about that and it got like, like a thousand likes, but so far no one, no one has like sent me any project they've done with that. So I'm hoping out of all those people who read that thread, like someone will do a project and like discover something cool that, um, you know, that'll help us like, like understand how to study chess or, or, you know, something about chess. Yeah. I, I mean, like the, the the potential is all there. Another thing I actually wanted to ask you now is, so what do you think about like, like the, the neural net engines and like more specifically, I know everyone has a, like a great opinion about Leela, et cetera, but I'm, I'm really, there's this paper that came out recently about like, um, you know, again, using the leeches data that um, there's this like neural net or something like that, that can basically like replicate a player, like with a 87% accuracy or something like. Uh, yeah, no, I was actually, I was just, um, I was just, I just like was looking over that paper. Um, actually, I just, I just emailed the guy to ask him if I could look at his code because it, it's there's, there's privacy concerns. So it's not just like up there, but, but uh, like, I just want to know what it's like yeah. to play me. Cause I, that's the thing that hurts me. I will never know what it's like to play myself. Cause I just want to know, am I an annoying player? Am I a resilient <laughs> player? Like, am yes. I a creative player? Like, that would be, I mean, of course I have huge holes in my opening repertoire, but that I hope the bot could replicate too. But I, I know like, you know, cause there's this Maya bot on Lee Chess that you can play that's at some fixed, yeah. like, you know, 1800 level, 1500 level, 1100 level, which is nice to train against until you get to like some end game that's technically winning and then it'll just crush you. But um, yeah, like I was always like, you know, cause, and actually there were some servers that kind of tried to do this like online. There was some like, you know, that could like, uh, like some computers that could pretend like they're like, uh, I mean, even chess.com has this where you can like play a non play Hikaru. And it, I mean, I'm sure it's similar, you know, they play similar openings, but I don't know like what it is beyond that. Like, I feel like something with like this, I had to ask like pawn grubber or something head of AI, but I know that like something like this, I mean, you probably can get like a scary accurate 
you know, and this is just yeah. like version one. No, I think it's, it's really, and yeah, the, so the, the same guys who, who did that, that studied about, so basically what they showed was like, they can look at the Lee chess database, look at a game from an unknown player and like match it to the, to a player in the Lee chess database with like kind of a shocking level of accuracy. Yeah. Like, honestly, like much more than I would even have thought is possible. And those are the same guys who did Maya actually. Yeah. So um, that makes perfect yeah. sense then. Yeah. So no, I think it's like, it's fascinating and it's great research. And yeah, like you said, like, I think um, it's getting towards, um, you know, so like I was saying, like, like Stockfish is incredibly strong at chess, but it's like, it's not really designed to play like a human or explain what it's doing to humans. So this is, these are, I think going towards that direction. And I have another idea, even like, let's say you're, you're Jan Nepomniachtchi in 2021, right? And you have to prepare for Magnus Carlsen. Now you have this AI tool, you make, you get this thing that really can replicate Magnus. I'm not talking about like the, the you know, the, I'm not saying the play Magnus bots on the Magnus Carlson app, like, you know, play Magnus app that I'm not saying that they're inaccurate, but I'm sure that the, you know, this AI neural net one will be far more accurate. And then you take Leela and you just let Leela go a hundred games, like 32, 3300 and just destroy this thing. Like then you could look and be like, you know, what are the kinds of, uh, what kind of weaknesses is uh is like this much stronger engine finding and you can use those to guide your mm -hmm. kind of philosophy for the match like that's something that that will be an uh, option for training and for prep that wasn't available before even beyond just trying to book up your opponent or outbook and 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 all that like really just like uh i don't know like turning someone into a cyborg and and and, and playing them yeah absolutely so yeah i think we've only like we sort of only scratched the surface so far although who knows what um I mean, there were some reports that like Napomniachi's team was working with like these Russian tech giants. So, so maybe who knows what, actually what they're already doing. Um, but yeah, like, like creating um, bots that are like more, more satisfying to play against, like, um, right. Like, like, so, so what, what the Maya bots do, maybe, you know, people who are listening might, might not be familiar with this is like, well, I guess big picture, I would say like, yeah, like neural, neural nets are like, super exciting like real deal you know not just because they play strongly but because how they play strongly is really interesting and in that in that they learn it just by playing themselves not with human knowledge right and it's more um, satisfying than like a regular robot like if you play right. stockfish level two and it's just it has programmed to hang pieces or it's programmed to have blunders whereas yeah. you know there's a kind of strength real or like not non-artificial strength to like um, maya bot for example yeah so the the difference between maya and um something like um Leela Zero is Leela Zero, which is which is similar to Alpha Zero, they both learn entirely by playing themselves. So then they sort of scaffold up and get really strong that way. Um Maya is also a neural net, but but it learns by trying to copy human games. So like Leela has never seen a human game. It's only playing itself. Maya is trained on this you know, corpus of human games that it's trying to copy. So what you end up, so so like previous generations of computers to to make them weaker, they did things that are very artificial and unsatisfying. Like it's just like every few moves, it just like randomly makes a blunder or something, which is right. which doesn't feel like how humans play. Um yeah, Maya, Maya subjectively does feel more human-like. And you can actually I was just um I was doing some analysis of um one of those Lee Chess monthly databases. And I saw like one player in the database had played like 19,000 games in a month. And I was like, what the hell is this? 
but um, it turned out it was the Maya bot. Mm -hmm. So that, so that makes sense. It's, they're actually really popular. And um, there's another one I was just playing with too, which is um, it's called lazy bot. It's another bot account on Lee chess. What that one is, is um, it's Leela, but with only the evaluation function. So, so Leela has like an evaluation module and a search module. Lazy, uh, lazy bot is just the evaluation model. So it's applying the, the evaluation function to the current position, but essentially it's not calculating at all. Um, Which actually is not bad for humans. Cause you know, sometimes like, you know, some positions for with human games are like, you know, computer will like flip flop flop and not really understand it until mm -hmm. you actually play the line out. Yeah. And it's actually, so it's like 2,500 blitz. So it's not easy to beat at all. Um, but it's probably it not a, but you can beat it though, actually. Sometimes. Yeah. Cause just basically like, it will like positionally it's pretty good it'll play like sort of like the intuitive move that looks good but it'll just blunder some tactics um so that that's another interesting one to to play with and yeah and they they tend to feel like a lot more human mm -hmm. um which is actually i should probably mention too i'm I, like i'm starting a book project which is really related to this which is going to be about um evaluating chess positions so so if you think about dividing chess in this way between calculation an evaluation, which is how chess engines work, you know, and, and kind of how humans work too. We've got like a million books about calculation, but very few about uh, evaluating positions. Um, so basically the, the big picture idea for the book is like a workbook on how to evaluate positions. Yeah, you which, know, actually, I, this is, a, this is a, something I wanted to just suggest to the listeners. You know, there's Tata Steele going on right now. Um, something that I've decided to do every day because I can't really follow. But what I've decided is at some random point between in European time, 2 p.m. and 4 p.m., I'm just going to open the Tata Steel games, turn the engine off, and just say, who's better? And just and that's it. Just as an exercise, like just, just to actually, you know, like, like you said, in terms of just evaluating positions, like what does every side have? And look at it from that perspective, like in two super strong games, and then try to decide who's going to win. Probably going to be draws most of the time. But... I'm, I, I predicted it correctly today. So, although it wasn't that hard to predict today, I should say. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great exercise. It, it's all, it's weird too. If you look at the engine, it's with the engine on, it seems like everything's obvious. But if actually, if you turn off the, if you, if you look without the engine at all, it's, it's almost never obvious. Um, right. And, and that's exactly yeah. my point. Like, like how, like, you know, how having that, I mean, the engine is like, it's good. Like when you're watching chess too, it's good for that. But, in terms of studying chess, it really doesn't mean that much. Like, I, long-time listeners know I created this disgusting, like, you know, I, I, I basically try, I created this, like, gambit line against um, the French back when I was an E4 player. It's like E4, E6, B3. Uh, mm -hmm. And then after D5, uh, you fianchetto the bishop. After D takes, you just develop. Develop, develop, develop. There's even a line I created with, like, some really early G4, like, double pawn sacrifice. And I had a scary nice score with it because it was it was just some line I created, and uh, okay, I lost really badly too. It was not a sound <laughs> by any means. But the evaluation doesn't mean anything because if you know the position, that's what matters more. Just to take a full circle, like even going back to what we were saying about openings. If you know the, if you understand the openings, the ideas in your opening, it doesn't matter if it's main line or not. Yeah, I noticed a lot. A lot of players seem to do well when they do their own opening research, even. Even if it's not entirely objectively correct, it seems like if, if it's your own research, you remember it well and like 
I don't know. You're, you're excited to play it. That's my, my like, secret. You know, That's... you know, you sort of go back in the lab and then you get to bring out this crazy like Frankenstein that you've created. And exactly. somehow it seems like it, like, I mean, it's a lot of fun for one thing, but, but um, it seems like often it works well for a lot of players too. I, I, I mean, I, I can tell you like the, the kind of stuff I cook up in my opening lab. I mean, that that's like when most of the chess work I do, because I know I'm never going to be like, I'm never going to be like a super strong player, right? But I can at least create interesting ideas with my Lee Chess opening book, which like you said, is an unbelievable resource. Like the fact, and the fact that it is free, especially, and more detailed than like the chess.com one, for example, which, you know, you have to pay to use. Um, that, that That's just like remarkable, really remarkable. Like it's a, it's a, it's a, like that's, so you always got to show love to Lee Chess for that. But man, I mean, I, I, I've, you find some crazy openings that people try and you can keep building on that and take it out into your blitz games and you just train wreck somebody, get train wrecked, say what went wrong, go back. It's a lot of fun. It's a cool way to play chess. And I, you can't really do that with like over the board or like you only have a couple of games a mm. month. But when you're playing, Although blitz, then you can, you can take that repertoire that you built up from hundred of blitz games and then sort of like bring that into the, you know, at that point it's sort of battle tested and you've, you've patched up a lot of the holes right. that, that might be exposed. And you've got that, you've got that experience of, I think, I think when you're learning and opening that experience of playing out the middle game is just as valuable as, as like knowing the first few moves. And that's like what you were saying, a quick starter guide on chessable and then just playing a bunch of blitz games with it. That's like the best way to actually learn how to play an opening, because if you're playing it really badly, you're getting punished immediately. And then if you're finding that, oh, my pieces aren't in the right places, that's stuff you can all train, like just from learning lines and stuff. And if you're getting good results, then hey, you, you kind of understand what's going on. Uh, so, I mean, you know, shout out uh, to, I mean, JJ Lang, who I had on my podcast, also in you know, Nebraska, you, you're going to supplant as, uh, you know, best Nebraskan player soon. Um, yeah, we're Maybe I think, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's, some, there's some other ch strong chess players out there. I don't know, if, I don't know who, who all is active, but yeah. Yeah, well, I'm just slandering JJ with, on the podcast. With JJ. <laughs> yeah. Twitter. Got married Twitter, recently. Twitter chess friends. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but, but, but JJ was saying something that's very similar about like, you know, like oh, the opening just doesn't matter. Like, like the, your, your, your rating is not going to drop dramatically if you like switch opening or whatever. Cause like, I th you know, I think it, I think it can, but like, but maybe in a different way than most people think. Like, what's rare, like, it's rare that you just like lose outright in the opening. Um, but what I think does matter a lot is like comfort level, confidence, knowing where your pieces go. Those things I think do matter. So it's so the opening does matter, but but it's in a little bit more of like a subtle long range right. way, not just in like, oops, I forgot the move. I just lost on move seven. Like that that doesn't happen that often. But right. no knowing how to play the opening in, in a broader sense does matter. So the last question I want to ask you um is I guess like just just like do you, do you think that like even your average like you know player like I guess what I'm talking about is more in terms of like how accessible this data science stuff is right not everybody's gonna be able to just open up you know their console on their MacBook and and start you know homebrewing some stuff like you know yeah. wget etc cetera, etc cetera. um like I guess like if somebody like wants to get started with this like chess data science stuff like where do you think they should look and I guess the other thing I want to ask as a follow-up is like, what's something in this regard that you think every player should like try to get out of, like in terms of this big data analysis kind of stuff, just to apply to their yeah. own improvement. So I think, yeah, like, I, I think as far as like um, out of the box tools, like 
aim chess is is trying to do this clearly and um I, I think like a lot of what they're doing is great like they just did this this annual report that's kind of fun to look at yeah the yearly recap um, you know cool. i think like like chess.com just revamped its analysis feature um uh to to sort of have some more explanations too so i, I think those are interesting but i would say may, like maybe the biggest thing for me is just like getting a little bit more sort of fluent and skilled at like using the engine because like you hear a lot of people say like turn off the engine um you know basically basically like if you're if you're not a really advanced player don't use it i think um i think just like learning a few techniques can um i basically i think it's within reach for for players who aren't like already experts or anything to still like get something out of working with the engine if if they kind of like change their habits around it a little bit and like I, I wrote a blog post about this recently, but I guess the the big um, the main upshot is like to be an active participant and to be act asking questions, you know. So you're not you're not just looking at the engine line. You're you're making different moves on the board. You're playing against the engine for just a few moves at a time, just to sort of test out ideas. So I think I think that that's a big one, along with the the Lee Chess checking out the Lee Chess database that we just um, right mentioned like looking at those stats can be really interesting as well so i think that's that's another one that you can do with just you know you don't have to know how how to program you can just adjust the settings in that um in that interface and see some yeah. interesting stuff but yeah i should i should probably run because i gotta go pack up a few more things to, yeah that's okay to well, move tomorrow so but. you're going to nebraska safe yep. travels thank you um yeah uh thanks everybody for listening to this episode of 64 chess podcast i had a blast uh nerding about data analysis today and whatnot um still learning a lot too but uh it's really it's really something i'm very passionate about so this is very cool hope to have you yeah. back best of luck with the move and uh uh thanks to my uh patron uh paul harbright my platinum patron for supporting the podcast uh appreciate it very much check out patreon.com 64 podcast if you'd like to support the pod financially uh thanks to aim chess for sponsoring me don't forget to use code david30 uh for 30 percent off uh your first month of aim chess thanks for listening guys have a good one